0: Well, welcome back to the Clear as Mud series and good morning. Glad to have you guys here. We're uh, just excited to be a part of uh, this series. We're clarifying the gospel and talking about that. Uh, just an FYI, this is a, a PG-13 level conversation. There are going to be some spots where we're going to talk about some pretty intense situations. So if you have kids young enough to understand what I'm talking about and you're not ready to have certain conversations pertaining to um, very, very controversial issues in life, um, you know, we, our children's ministry is, is willing to take your kids in and have that com- have a different conversation with them. Not that one, but anyway. Uh, just glad that you guys are here today. And we are um, last week been looking in the Book of Acts at a very special council. There had been this confusion in the church about what we needed to do after we had been accepted through Jesus Christ. And there was a whole group out there trying to say you need to be circumcised and you then need to become follow the Jewish law in order to truly be Christian. And so last week we had our guest speaker and he walked us through the process through the process of that council as various people spoke and then we came to the conclusion. That we are free to just receive Jesus Christ. We don't have to be circumcised. We don't have to uh, follow the Jewish law. At which point I would have expected last service that all the men would have been shouting amen at that point, right? I mean, amen. You just, this council just saved every men's ministry on the planet right now. Why? Because they just saved your men's ministry from not having bacon. Bacon is a huge portion of every men's ministry. Amen, guys? right? You know what I'm talking about. And if we had had to follow the Jewish law, you would have wound up in a situation where you were no longer allowed to have bacon at your men's ministry events. And we're going, that's horrible. But second, there was one guy in our church who was amening like crazy during that service. And that was Brent Branshaw. You just saw him up here. He was doing the announcements because he's our connections pastor. Can you imagine having the connection pastor's job if your first thing you had to tell a man was, hi, welcome to Christ. By the way, there's a surgery we have to schedule with you. (laughs) That would not go well. You think it's hard getting baptisms done. That was not going to go well for for Brent's job. And so we were pretty happy. He was amening. I think lots of men were secretly amening inside thinking, thank you, Lord Jesus, for saving us. We've got bacon. And yes, awesome. So as we we continue forward, though, there is an interesting aspect to this council that we're going to look at. Because while they are telling you and telling me that we are saved by grace, It is through Jesus Christ's work on the cross, his bearing of our sins from yesterday, today, and and in the future, taken on him, all of our punishment removed from us. Guys, we have this freedom to walk in him. Something occurs. Let's take a look at that. We're going to find it here in Acts chapter 15, and we're going to be looking at verses 19 through 33, but we'll start at verse 19 here. And so I want you guys to grab your Bibles and open it up as you do that um, and go there. We're back in the book of Acts. For those of you who have not been in Acts with us, I want to explain what this book is. This is actually a, a scroll that was written by a man named Luke. He was a doctor, a physician, and he'd been asked by a Roman official, hey, what's the history of the Christian church? Want to know a little bit more? And so Dr. Luke had engaged in writing two very large scrolls. The first was the biography of Jesus. We know it as the gospel of Luke. The second scroll that went with it is this one that we're looking at. We call it Acts today, but it's a history of the church for the first 30 years from the resurrection of Jesus to roughly the rest of Paul, the arrest of Paul in Rome. And so what we're looking at is one of the most critical moments in all of church history. You have the apostles and the elders gathered together to make a determination of how non-Jewish people are going to live in the church. And so we have that statement that, hey, guys, we are free and we're not going to be troubled. Notice how James, the brother of Jesus, who is the head of the church now, rises up to speak towards the issue. He says, therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble uh, trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God. And we all went, amen, praise God, right? And then we have this word, but. Nobody likes the word but in a sentence, especially when it's like one thing's positive and then there's a but because we, there's a claim out there that now everything you say after that is just erased, right? So that's nice. Forget what I just said. We've got new things to add on. Oh, it's so great. You're saved by grace, but. You've, got, you've been accepted by Christ, but. Honey, I love you, but. You know, those are dangerous statements, and this but is sitting right in, this is really awkward to say that over and over again, but it's sitting right in the middle, all the junior hires in, in your heart are laughing. Should we, but should, we should write to them to abstain from things polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from what has been strangled, and from blood. And so there's these four sudden things that James goes, okay, yeah, 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 don't burden them with the Jewish law, don't burden them with a circumcision Instead, we, we need these four things that we should tell them to abstain from. Yeah, you're accepted by Christ, but there are four things we want to abstain from. What, what's going on here is suddenly I feel like the gospel just got muddied. It's like, oh, so clear we're accepted by Jesus because now we got things we got to do. I thought we were under grace. This looks like law. How do we work this out? What is going on here? James continues. He, he just says, um, for, from ancient generations, Moses... Has had in every city those who proclaim him. For he has read in every synagogue, or sorry, he has read it every Sabbath in the synagogues. And so he says, look, this is well known. And you think, okay, wait, wait, wait. Paul and Barnabas are gonna be like, ah, time out. We I still feel like we're doing too much here. Aren't they just received Jesus? We don't need to worry about this. The Spirit of God will lead them. But that's not how it works. In fact, it goes on, it says, Then it seemed good to the apostles and the and the elders. Hmm. Well, that's a problem for us because let's look at this again. It seemed good to the apostles and to the elders with the whole church to choose men from among them, send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas, who seemed to be in agreement. They send them down there with these two other guys from the Jerusalem church, Barsabbas and Silas, and they send them with a letter. Now, this is a unity picture. They're saying, hey, guys, we're all behind this. We're all excited about this. We're all unified. Yeah, there's no but that is out of the way for us. You're accepted by Christ, and there's four things we want you to abstain from. This is good. Let's take this message out there. And so there seems to be a unity about this, and it's important that we notice the apostles and the elders. Guys, this is the biggest church council in history. If people are going to ask you where certain beliefs came from in the Christian church, you're not going to go back to any other unifying council than this one. You see, All the other councils we can debate over. You can have Catholics and Protestants debate over councils. You can have Greek Orthodox and Coptics, and you can have the Tomizians from out in India. They can all disagree on which councils and what are the saints and all that stuff, but everybody sits down and says, yes, this council of the apostles and the elders of Jerusalem counts for everybody. It's in the Bible. And so when we look at this, we need to remember something. We need to remember this is, this is a council that binds the churches. Now, some of this is interesting because they're saying, yes, but, and then they write this letter where they begin with just this simple, like, hey, guys, uh, it was, seemed good to us to, to write to you guys these things. And so actually it starts off with who's sending it, the brothers, the apostles, the elders, the brothers who are in Gentiles. So they're, who are sending it to or the Gentiles in Antioch and Syria. This is the to and from portion of the letter. And then they get into it. Since we've heard that some persons have gone out from us and troubled you with words, unsettling your minds, although we gave them no instructions, he's saying, look, we heard some people were telling you that you had to get out there and be circumcised and follow the laws of Moses. We didn't send them. We don't agree with them. Let's let's move forward from here. It picks up in verse 25. So it seemed good to us. Having come to one accord, that's a unity statement, to choose men and send them to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, those are your elders, men who have risked their lives for the sake of our Lord Jesus Christ. We have therefore sent Judas and Silas, who themselves will tell you the same things by word of mouth. So they're going to come, they're all going to tell you the same thing. Well, what is this you're going to tell us? For it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit... And to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements. And so we'll just stop right there. First of all, it's one thing it was the apostles and the elders, they upped the ante. They said, no, this is from God. You know, this is the Holy Spirit that says these things, and these things are requirements. Now, if you weren't uncomfortable before that there's a big but in the middle of the passage, this is now an issue because these are requirements. And I got all like uncomfortable with the word requirements because I've got a personality style that's like kind of likes to not have too many requirements on myself. And uh, so I dove in and I looked at it and the word actually is worse than just requirements. It's the word what is Necessary. What's interesting, if you'll look in your Bible up to verse 5 in chapter 15, just kind of carry your eyes up there. In verse 5 of chapter 15, you'll see that by it says this. But some believers who belong to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, It is necessary to circumcise them in order to keep in order for them to keep and order them to keep the law of Moses. And what he's saying is, it's necessary for that. And they're like, No, this is what's necessary. It is these words that have led me to the belief that. What is going to follow cannot be divided up into ceremonial laws and moral laws. That these four things are still binding on the church even today. To be called necessary, to be called requirements, are not things that were just, hey, you know, we just want to make the Jewish people feel good. We actually, these are important. These are things we ought to live by as Christians who are Gentiles and not Jewish and those four things are listed up here. The, you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols, from blood, from what has been strangled, and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves, well, um, keep yourselves from these things, you will do well. Farewell. And that's the end, of the end of the letter. Now, wrestle with me for a minute because this seems so arbitrary. Like James is sitting there going like, no, nah, no, nah, we don't want to follow the law. I got four things that really take Jewish people off. Let's tell them to do those. That's not what he did. He wasn't just like, "Uh, maybe I don't like these things. No, there's actually a background to this. And when you dive into the background, it gets pretty fascinating, actually. So I want to take you on a little journey first into the background, and then we'll get into these four things and see what they mean for us today. But let's begin with this. Actually, the background is found in Leviticus chapter 17 and 18. You don't need to turn there if you want to. Go ahead. You'll find some fascinating lists. But it's found in the book of Leviticus. And there's a lot of people who want to argue, oh, the book of Leviticus, that's only for the priests of Israel. That's not important to anybody today. And yet... If you stop and read the book of Leviticus, you see that at the beginning it is about the priests. They're telling you when to sacrifice, how to sacrifice, and then they teach you about certain skin diseases and stuff like that, all in the book of Leviticus. And then it shifts its goal and goes, hey, by the way, now for those who are Jewish, these are your rules, living in the land, living with God. Priests who are present with God, here's how you keep yourself holy because God is with you and God is in the land. God is in your presence at the temple. Hey, Jerusalem. Hey, people in Israel. Hey, guys that are Jewish and Israelites, this is how you live with God. Here are the rules. And then it shifts one more time. And in verse seven, chapter 17 and 18, it gives us another audience. It expands it even more. Sorry, it says, and you shall say to them, anyone of the house of Israel or of the strangers who sojourn among them. Notice that interesting new language, kind of one of the first times it really shows up. The sojourners are the strangers who sojourn among them. These are not Jewish people. They are non-Jewish people dwelling in the land with Jewish people. And so this shows up four times in the next two chapters, this particular language, strangers who sojourn among them. And there is this interesting set of lists that begin to roll out in Leviticus chapter 17 and 18. The first thing it tells you in chapter 17 is it goes, hey guys, when you make a sacrifice, make sure you bring it to the altar there at the tabernacle so that you'll stop worshiping goat demons i well, I talk about an awkward like, a thing amidst the Old Testament. You're like, what in the world's a goat demon? That's kind of freaky sounding. And uh, yet they were saying, hey, don't sacrifice to the goat demons. We're done. Instead, you shall say to them, and any one of the house of Israel or the strangers who sojourn among them, who offers a burnt offering or a sacrifice and does not bring it to the entrance of the tent of meeting to offer it to the Lord, that man shall be cut off from his people. He says, here's the rule. You're not going to worship to idols. You're not going to sacrifice to idols. You're not going to do these things even if you're a sojourner of the land, even if you're a sojourner among them. Second, they go on to say, the next thing you need to do is you need to not drink the blood of the animals. You pour out the blood of the animal. You eat the animal. Even if you fight it dead, you pour out the blood of the animal. You are going to not eat blood. This is also true, and then it says it again, for the strangers who sojourn among them. And if you do this, you're going to be cut off from your people. The next one starts off and it goes, now, what they do in Egypt and what they do in Canaan, you know, you guys aren't going to do. And neither are the strangers or, or those who sojourn, you know, the strangers who sojourn among you. And... Moses writes this one down, and we're not clear what that is because then he breaks into like line after line after line about incest and who you can sleep with and who you, you, know, who you shouldn't sleep with and not your, not your father's wife, not your mother's, blah, blah, and just on and on and on, list after list after list. And this is where you get the infamous section on what we call sexual immorality. Everything from incest, homosexuality, bestiality, all listed in one chapter. This is not what you're to do. And in fact, it ends it with one final thought. It says, and do not burn your children on the hands of Molech, at the idol of Molech. These abominations you shall not do, nor those strangers who sojourn among you. These are the four things listed for all of us who are strangers who sojourn amongst the Jewish people, who live in the presence of God. And very clearly, what I want you to understand is that we've been called and we are accepted by grace. We're called to Christ through grace so we can live for God. We can live with God. And now as we live with God, what the council thought was, how do we tell them how to live with God appropriately? And it's not what can insult the Jews. It's what, hey, in the Old Testament, this is how those who sojourned in the kingdom were to live. Let's just instruct them to do those things. Four things. You, won't, you will abstain from idolatry. Number two, you won't drink blood. Number thing, you won't do what the Egyptians and the Canaanites did. And number four, you'll you'll abstain from sexual immorality. All from Leviticus 17 and 18. And what's fascinating as you begin to examine this is that this maps so well, it begins to see why they said what they said. And it was understood that this was preached in all of the synagogues on every Sabbath. So this would have been known. And so I don't think that you can take these four things and just simply go, eh, three of those, no good. One of them, we're good with. There are moral ones. We're going to stand on those. I think all four of them are still binding to the church today. And so what we need to look at is what are we being called to abstain from? And first of all, he says, we need to abstain from idolatry. Now, idolatry is one of those Uh, things that today it seems to have died off, it seems to be gone, but in their day, man, you you needed to avoid going to idol temples. There were idols on every block. If you walked to a crossroad, you saw Hecate, the goddess of witchcraft, sitting at the center and travel. If you went into a town, there was invariably the god who was over that town. You were to sacrifice to uh, gain favor of that god for that town. There was idolatry everywhere. It was a lot like going to a Thailand When I went to Thailand with my wife, we were able to go visit a couple overseas workers there, and we got a tour of some of the Buddhist temples. And we were toured by, our tour guide was an ex-Buddhist who had become a Christian and she would translate for us what we were reading. And as we were gathering around, sitting down, looking at all these interesting things, I mean, you're talking like um, carved out uh, Buddhist monks who look like they've been freeze-dried it is some of the weirdest stuff. But they bow down to these guys, they, they chant their, their things, they follow all this stuff. And invariably, we come into a room where there's four of these like freeze-dried kind of guys sitting there or this, whatever they were made of. And... There was always some backpack-carrying, sandal-wearing, granola-eaten American <laughs> that walked into the Buddhist temple, looked around. It was like, this is cool. And then would kneel down and, and pinch their incense and burn stuff and, and just sit there. And I'm like, do you, and I leaned over to our guide. I said, do you think those Americans know what they're doing? She's like, none of them know what they're doing. They're just following what everybody's, they think this is cool. And she's like, when I talk to them, they think it's cool. What they don't understand is they're involving themselves with demons. This is my guide who lived in Buddhism, who had come out of it, understood what was going on. She's like, they, don't, they, that, they just think it's something to do. This is a spiritual reality they're working with. She fits far more with Paul than many of us would feel like. And the danger is in today's society, there are idolatrous practices that surround us. And you're saying, Greg, why are you saying idolatrous practices? It says don't don't you know what's been sacrificed to idols Well, let me explain quickly. When you would visit an idol temple, you didn't go in at 10 o'clock and sit down and the idol worshiping band got up and they all played music and people stood and raised their hands and sang out to whatever idol was in the temple. No, no, no. They didn't do a worship service like we think of it. When you worshiped an idol, you either sacrificed your body and sex, an animal poured out its blood, or you did some crazy thing of sacrifice as your sign of worship to that god. And so when it says things sacrificed to idols, it's saying don't involve yourself in idol practices. In fact, the rest of the New Testament interprets it this way. Over and over again, don't get involved with idols. Avoid all idolatry. Don't go to the idol temple. Over and over and over, they will discuss what this means in their culture. For us today, there is a new need to remind ourselves to avoid idols and idolistic practices, false religious practices. And the reason why is it's growing. Americans are curious about spiritual practices that are not Christian. I mean, you tell somebody, yeah, I'm going to church, and they're like, oh, that sounds boring. You tell them, hey, I'm going to the Hindu temple, they're like, ooh, intriguing. And what's interesting is our culture is far more interested in these kind of practices. Yoga has exploded, it's a Hindu practice. And we should be weary, leery a bit about whether how far involved in yoga we are. Yeah, I get it. Some of them are stretch poses and some of them are are just building muscle and it's an exercise. But you talk to Eastern Christians who live in the States from China. They say, no, those are spiritual poses. They're worshiping their various gods. And so I would warn you, maybe you're doing it for exercise, but when they get into the setting out the candles and feeling your chakra and making sure that the, the chi inside of you or whatever that is, that you need to go, you know, as a Christian, I need to abstain from that spiritual aspect because that I don't worship that God. When you get engaged in something, for example, like somebody invites you to get into um, mindfulness is what they call it now. And they say, get into mindfulness, sit down and focus your mind and then empty your mind. It's called Transcendental Meditation. It's Buddhist. And the idea is to empty yourself, to calm yourself, to center yourself. All this language comes from Eastern religion. We need to go, hold on, what are we doing here? I need to step aside for a second. I'm called to not engage myself in idle practices. You know, I know there's a lot of people out there who feel like, hey, I can smoke stuff and it opens my mind up to God. Again, an idle practice. I, we need to warn ourselves a little bit and I gotta be careful here because I get oils are popular right now and when Jesus rose Lazarus from the dead, he used an essential oil. I get that. You know, I'm just kidding, but the point is, <laughs> wait for it, there you go. Uh, there is a there, oils have these oils have some medicinal qualities the danger is many of them are starting to push things like crystals and other things like hey some of the new age techniques that go along with this stuff and some of these spiritual points on your body guys this is stuff that comes from eastern religions and we as christians need to be careful not to engage ourselves in idle in idol practices because we're called to re to to abstain to be wicca tarot palm reading and these kind of things that we need to be able to go, hey, you know what? That's a false practice. We don't engage in these things. And we need to wake up because it's changing. And it all looks so secular, but it's not secular. And so we need to be careful when we engage. We need to be careful what we're looking at. Besides, why practice? You have so much to practice in Christianity. I mean, how many of us have really sat ourselves down to endure and practice prayer? I mean, really build a prayer life. Really engage with God in your contemplation of the Word of God. How many of us have really meditated on Scripture instead of emptying our minds? You see, Christianity is about engaging life, taking it full all the way in because God made it. And to engage it rightly and to think about it Seriously, that's what God gave us to do. And so all of our practice, be it fasting, is supposed to lead you closer to God and engage better with the community. Serving, loving, generosity, all of these are spiritual practices for the church. And there's so many that we can participate in that few of us are really engaging in. And let me encourage you, you don't need idle practices. You have so many opportunities to engage in our practices. Speaking of other practices, one of the interesting ones I heard about was uh, from... A friend of mine, him and his wife, had gone off for their final like uh, couple trip before their before their child was born, and they headed to Ireland. And uh, what was interesting is in Ireland they were like, we're gonna just dive in, we're gonna eat what they eat, we're gonna spend time, it's gonna be awesome. And my my buddy told me, this was yesterday, he told me, man, I had the worst gas ever in the history of humanity. He said nearly ruined our trip. We couldn't figure out what was going on, everything stank, it was ridiculous. And it was just an awful situation until finally he changed one thing. He's like, I don't know, what, it, it was this one thing. Why stopped eating the black pudding that they were giving me. And if you know what black pudding is, it is pig's blood coagulated, and then you just eat it like a pudding. At that point, I think that's where I say, praise God, he's told us to abstain from eating blood, right? Because that's what this means. Uh, what was interesting was just messing up his system, but, the, but in this case, this is an old, old Requirement given to Noah, not even the Jewish people. Noah was told, Go ahead, eat the animals, make sure you pour out the blood, for it. in the blood is the life source of the animal, was the idea. And it was calling you away from trusting that the animal will give you power, but that God would give you the power that you need for life. And what's interesting is ancient pagan religions, especially the barbarians of the time period, loved, loved, loved them some blood. I mean, the Vikings, before they would go fishing, made sure they bit a head off a of mackerel. <laughs> to get the power of the sea in them. Maybe some of you have been hunting and you've been challenged to go after you finally shot that first deer to take the heart and bite it. Ah! supposed to give spiritual power to the the Indian who did that, or to the Native American who did that. And here's the thing. We need to be careful because that is actually against what we're talking about here. You're saying, "You, you tell me I can't have rare steak? Actually, I'm not telling you that. Your rare steak is actually not blood that's coming out of that. It's called myoglobin. It's different from hemoglobin. Those are two different things, and you're not actually eating blood. It's not a bloody steak. It's a rare steak. There's different actual chemicals, and they knew that. They knew it wasn't blood. Blood is one thing. You poured blood out. It flowed. And so what's interesting about this situation is they did not—very few people ate blood, the only place in the Roman society you ate blood was you would go into a mystery cult. And then in, their, in, in the bull mystery cult from um, for Mithras, you would have to stand under a bull as they chopped open his neck, poured the blood out, and you drank full the beating blood of the bull until you puked as an initiation right to enter. How's that for religion right there? But I guarantee you guys, we need to be careful. Now, I don't understand why God tells us not to eat blood. Just be quite honest. I'm like, I don't get it. I'm like, it doesn't, you know, I hear people are like, oh, it's uh, nutrition for you. It's healthy. It's well, and it's like, and I'm, I don't know if it is or isn't. All I know is this. I also don't know why I have to put a certain kind of weight of oil in my car. Anybody else got that down yet? I'm not like, what's the difference? Give me oil. Why does it have to be 0W or 5W or 30 weight or this? I'm just like, what are we talking about here? And you find out if you put the wrong weight in your car, eventually it gums up your engine and it doesn't work right. You put water in your gas tank, have fun, ain't gonna dry very soon. Because the manufacturer designed it a certain way. Now I don't know about you or me, but God is our manufacturer. And if he tells us you shouldn't be putting blood into the system, then maybe that's a good idea that we kind of listen to the manufacturer. I usually try to trust the manufacturer when it comes to this kind of stuff. I may not understand it, but I'm willing to trust him. And these are easy ones, okay? Like, you know, don't, don't get involved in idolatry. Okay, I got that. Don't drink blood. Nah, eh, that sounds weird, but okay. You know, if ever, anybody ever offers me blood in a foreign, foreign land, I, I have now the official ability to say it's against my religion. And so you're good to go, <laughs> all right? But these next two, I want you to hear me. I want to ask you to listen with grace because if there's anywhere that spiritual warfare has engaged, if there's anywhere the enemy has wanted to attack, it's these next two issues. And you can leave here today feeling angry. You can leave here early feeling hurt, as somebody did earlier this service. You can leave here before we get to the end, but I want you to hear me, that this is not something that we should take lightly, but it has been the standard of the church since its beginning, and I believe it was founded in this passage. And the first one is, again, it's controversial. We're going to walk all over it, but it is that we should abstain from abortion and infanticide. You say, what? How did you get that from... what has been strangled, Greg, you crazy. Well, here's the thing. The word what has been strangled is an extremely rare word. And as we've gathered more and more knowledge of our Greek, and we've pulled together into databases, as they started to research this one little word that is very, so very rarely used, the only way we understood what it was, was later in the future when the word showed up, it was referring to culinary things that were strangled and eaten. But when you examine the ancient time period of the Romans, nobody strangled an animal to eat it. They butchered it just like everybody else did. Cut it and poured it out. And if you didn't, it was considered abuse. There was a random little cult off in the middle of nowhere that would strangle an animal once in a while. But I doubt that the people in Jerusalem had heard about that. The claim that this is how they thought the Gentiles killed their animals probably wasn't good because they were around lots of Gentiles and saw how they butchered their meat. So what in the world is this thing about strangled things? Well, in the ancient world of the Roman Empire, infanticide was the number one way of birth control. A Roman father, if he'd so desired, after a child was born or before a child was born, he could induce abortion with some herbs and stuff like that if he didn't want the child, and he'd ask the wife and and the woman would have to do so. The second way was that the child was born, he had the right then to either receive the child in the family by picking it up and raising it, or he would turn his back, and reject it. In fact, we have a very famous letter that says, I'm on this great little journey out here in nowhere, and I'm telling you I'll be home at this time. When the child comes, if it's a girl, throw it in the river. If it's a boy, name it so-and-so and 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 such-and-such. What's fascinating about the exposure concept, and that's what they called it, exposing the child, is that very few babies were actually exposed. And when you exposed a child, it was because the mother felt so overwhelmed by what was going on. They would have a slave take it and place it out on the midst of a, like in the middle of a location where the trash was or stuff like that. And they would leave the baby there. It would either be eaten by animals alive, most likely in the, after Christians came along, it would be found and Christians would save them and adopt them in. Over and over and over and over again. Because somewhere in the New Testament, or somewhere in the church along the lines, the church got this idea that abortion and infanticide was wrong. And what's very clear is that we even wrote about it in a book that was written in the 90s. It almost made it in our Bibles called The Teaching of the Twelve or otherwise known as the D, the K. It's also repeated very clearly in a something called the Epistle of Barnabas and shows up several other times in other ancient fathers who wrote all of them were very clear, and they would say things like this. You shall not, this is from Dita k 2 you shall not commit fornication, you shall not steal, you shall not practice magic, you shall not practice sorcery. So now we've got no sexual immorality, we've got no idle practices. And then they said, you shall not kill an unborn child or murder a newborn infant. You can't get much clearer than that. And the church was unanimous about it. Unanimous. And has never stopped being unanimous when they've stood with the scriptures. The Greek Orthodox Church, the Catholic Church, the Protestant churches have said, no, this is not okay. Those children are made in the image of God. But we don't understand, why does it show up more in the New Testament then? It seems to be missing. And the answer to me is because this was very clear to the people who knew that what had been outlawed was you will not smother. Well, why, why smother? What's smother? Because the real way most infanticide occurred was when the child was rejected by the father, the mother was required then to smother the child to death, taking a cloth or drowning them in a river. By their, and a woman who was considered weak would expose the baby. Everyone knew the majority way a child died was being smothered or drowned, and that's what that word means. They couldn't use the word "expose" because it had too many other connotations in the culture. It wasn't clear. But everybody understood when you talked of smothering something. In fact, when we get to that culinary arts situation where it's about food, the first time it's ever heard of by this Greek guy who loves culinary arts was actually about baby animals that were smothered. And so this concept of smothering the babies, the young, was well known and very, very, very clearly to me was in here. Why am I so sure about it? Because you go back to Leviticus 17. And actually, Leviticus 18. At the beginning, it says, you shall not do what they did in Egypt, and you shall not do what they do in Canaan. And at the end of they said, you will not offer your children on the altars of Molech, which is they would take a live child on burning cold hands, burning hands, and offer them sizzling on the hands of their altar god. That's what they did in Canaan. What did they do in Egypt? They took the children of the Jewish people and threw them live into the Nile River with the crocodiles and everything else. And it sits right there as the third thing that you shall not do as a sojourner in the land and as a stranger. Yeah, no, no idolatry. No, 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 don't don't eat blood and do not, do not commit abortions or infanticide. We're called to abstain. And that's why I believe as a church we should continue to invite children to our home from families that have unplanned pregnancies. We're ready to adopt. We're ready to challenge them to have life. We're ready to encourage them forward. We're ready to, to love and do everything that we can. And that's why, how the church has stood, I believe, since the Council of Jerusalem. Now, if that one hasn't been hard, let's join the next one, that we should abstain from sexual immorality. These two have been so done in our political culture currently that this, is, this feels dangerous even in our current culture to talk about. But very clearly, what Leviticus is speaking about when it comes to sexual immorality is, is again, all, everything that deals with um, sleeping with your brother, sister, aunt, uncle, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, into homosexuality and bestiality all the way down, which would include bisexuality, which would include pretty much all the LGBTQ plus stuff that's, that we are arguing for. This is the morality that has been held in the church and Judaism since their inceptions. And what they said is we want you to abstain from these things, to hold back from these things. And I can I don't want to get too detailed in all this stuff, but clearly as a Christian, we've been called while accepted in Christ, we've been called to abstain from this sexual immorality. That would include adultery, that would include polyamory, that will include uh, that will include in our case polygamy in our culture, that also includes, Uh, Let's just put pornography on there and fantasy. All of this stuff falls in the zone of sexual immorality. And we as a church washed in this world of sex have to learn how to say no and abstain. And you go, well, why? Why does God care about my sexuality? Some of you might even feel like I've attacked you. I'm telling you, you can't love somebody. You can't have these relationships. And that's actually not what I'm saying. What I want you to hear is that God's calling us to abstain. And yes, he's drawn boundaries. Well, Why the boundaries? What's the point of the boundaries? This weekend, as an illustration, uh, we actually got, brought home our first dog ever for my family. My kids are going nuts. They're super excited. A little cute little puppy, nine weeks old. Oh, yeah, you've had a nine-week-old puppy, huh? <laughs> and a nine-week-old puppy, there's one word that's in our house right now all the time. No. No. Hack. No. Hack. Stop. No, hack, no, hack, there, no, hack, stop. Stop biting, no, ow, stop, no, ow, stop. No pee there, no, don't poop on that, stop, stop. That's what my house is right now. Think four children and two adults doing this constantly, and you know what my house sounds like right now. Why are we so concerned about where the dog poops and pees and biting us? Well, one reason we're building all these boundaries and saying no all the time, to be quite honest, is because we don't want the dog to die from chewing on electric cords, which he's already tried once. The other one is we don't want him to pee and poop on our carpet because we want him to live well in our house. We want him to become part of the family. And we don't poop and pee on our carpet. We don't want the dog to either. <laughs> so let's make sure that we're in the right zone here. And we want to live together rightly. Now think about this. We've been saved by grace and accepted by God so that we can live with God. How do you live with God? How do you live rightly with God? He calls us to abstain. But guess what? He's not calling you to not desire. Let's make this clear. Some of you have same sex attractions. Some of you will find yourself in a situation of a crisis pregnancy and you will be tempted to have an abortion. Some of us will find ourselves near the internet ready to click on some pornography site. We'll be tested by somebody who thinks you're attractive at your work site for adultery. Look, the bottom line is all these are desires. You're not wrong to be tempted. Temptation comes to all of us. All of us have desires. All of us, however, have been called by Jesus to put our desires at the cross, to deny ourselves, take up our cross, and follow him. And that means there's lots of things in my heart that I want that I have to say to myself, I abstain. I abstain. See, he didn't say require them to never do these things he required them to have self-control to abstain from these things from their own ability and desire because they have found Christ and they want him because God wants to protect us and he wants us to live well with him and so I want to tell you we abstain because we found something greater than our desires We abstain because we found something greater than the idols. We abstain because we found something more fulfilling. We abstain because we get our power not from some blood of animals, but from the Lord Jesus Christ and his blood on the cross. It's about our gospel. It's about loving one another. Paul will actually go off on this subject in 1 Corinthians chapter 8 through chapter 11 on idolatry, but he says, "Hey guys, why should you abstain? Why should you hold back? Yeah, you have the rights and all, but why should you hold back? Because you love God. Man, he saved you. What wouldn't you give up to him? That he's released you from your sins of your past, the sins of your present, the sins of your future. He's allowing you to have a relationship with him. He's inviting you into heaven. He's saved you from hell. And now he says, hey, I'm asking you these four things. The second thing Paul says is, why wouldn't we do it for the sake of each other? Causing each other, tempting each other, causing each other to sin. He's like, no, 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 we abstain so that we can love on each other and care about each other. Why should we abstain? Except for the very fact that Jesus Christ dwells in you and you can, hear me. You do not have to follow your genetics. You do not have to follow your upbringing. You are greater than your genetics. You are greater than your upbringing because Christ dwells in you to empower you above and beyond those things. And you can abstain and tell your desires no, and you can starve them and walk away from them and find a new, grander, greater desire in Jesus Christ that fulfills you more than you could have ever imagined than the pornography, than the same sex attractions, than the opposite sex attractions outside of marriage, than all of the other kinds of idolistic spiritual practices, than all of these things. And we abstain because of what Christ has done for us. And in the end, this is how the church understood it. They were, this is how they always have done it. And they received this joyfully. Notice this as we finish this up. He says So, when they sent, were sent off, they went down to Antioch. And when they had, and so, and they, and having, a, so when they went down to Antioch, and having gathered the congregation together, they delivered the letter. And when they had read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. Now, that's what I want to point out. They rejoiced because of its encouragement. Now, Judas and Silas, they jumped in, they did some more profiting and stuff and strengthened the people with a lot of words and Paul and Barnabas take off to go give this to the other churches and and strengthen them as well. And so it's just kind of a, a close up and they're ready to go return on a new mission trip that we'll pick up here next week. But the bottom line is the church received it with joy. They were encouraged by it. And we want to receive this with joy. See, we're called to abstain, guys out of response, out of worship for what God has given you. And we're called to abstain, so we do so joyfully because we're accepted. This doesn't have to be muddy. You're accepted in Christ. You're accepted in Christ, free and complete. It calls you to abstain because of what you've been given. So, Greg, what do I do if I've been one of those people that have done one of these things? And I, I think of myself as a Christian, but I'm like, am I not a Christian? What's going on? No, 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 hear me. The times that I have failed and viewed pornography, man, I have struggled with this question. Am I a Christian? Am I, should I even be a pastor? What in the world's wrong with me? Man, I want to quit right now, but, you know, I have to tell my wife, tell the elders, talk through this stuff. And in the end, here's what, I, here's what comes down to. God says, what do you think I did at the cross? What do you think I did when I bore your sins? I didn't just bear your past sins. I bore your future sins. You didn't think I know, I knew already what you would do? You didn't think I knew what you would go through? I pulled it all on myself. So if you find yourself and you've had an abortion, or maybe you find yourself and you've given into sexual temptation, or you find yourself and, yes, you've eaten blood or given yourself into idolatry or something like that, just return to the cross. We may not be walking right with God in his realm right now, but we can come back to the cross, receive grace, and now step newly in, learning to abstain, because he gives you the power to do so to dwell with God, to enjoy His presence, to know His kingdom, and to share it with others, to give it away, because we're free from all those things which bound us down. Return to the grace. Learn to abstain. Some of that learning to abstain means you're going to have to jump into some groups. And learn to get healed and, and to get past some of these things, especially if you've gone if you've gone through sexual things. There's addictions, and so you might just need some church counseling at first to work some of this stuff out. We want to encourage you to meet our prayer team. It's a great place to confess and just start, where somebody's going to hear you and pray for you. It's not going to get on some list somewhere and be sent out. No, it's just it's there for you to be prayed over. Maybe you need safe harbor or, as you heard, celebrate recovery, a place you can sit down and talk to other people who are also overcoming these things and learning to abstain and gain strength to walk with Christ. Maybe you had that abortion. Maybe you, you can join up and go over to celebrate—sorry—to uh, Life Services. They have a post-abortion counseling service, and they walk people through it. And I know ladies who have gone through this and it's revolutionized their lives because they didn't know they needed to mourn for the loss of their kids. They didn't know they needed to go through the grief process. And the freedom and the healing they've received has enabled them to to grow further in the relationship with Christ afterwards. And I just want to encourage you, we're not here to condemn. We're here to remind you God loves you. No matter what is broken in your life, no matter what has gone on, whatever you're addicted to or connected to, Christ has overcome those things through the work on the cross and his resurrection. He's giving you life. He loves you. He's willing to forgive you and he's willing to wipe it clean to let you live and he wants to dwell with you. This isn't about, oh, shame on you. This is about, oh my goodness, God loves you and he put the shame on himself. He took it to love you. He bore it. To free you. And what you have is the opportunity to be forgiven by God no matter where we're at. So, church, let's walk in these things, knowing that we've been accepted and that these four things are what we're gonna do to live out and walk with our God. And I think that's, to me, exciting because it gives us the chance to be gracious to each other. I want you just to stop and think maybe you know somebody, or maybe you don't, maybe you're somebody in the room who struggles with same sex attraction. I want you to be able to go to a small group where, guys, as small groups, we're going to receive that information and love on them because we struggle with stuff too, amen? That if they tell you, hey, I struggle with same-sex attraction, you say, you know what, I struggle with stuff too. We want to be here to help you to grow and to walk with Christ. Will you help me grow and walk with Christ? That's what our world needs, not judgmentalness, Not not a place that they're afraid to open up their hearts because they want to follow Jesus. And man, they've put it down at the cross. And it's hard to do that alone. Let's build each other up. Let's love on each other. Let's encourage each other forward as we all struggle in sin together. Amen? Well, would you bow your heads with me? Right now, I just want to maybe encourage you today that if you're in here, you have heard this and maybe God has pricked your heart. He's saying, hey, I love you and you felt that shame, maybe you felt that guilt, maybe you understand that you fall short of whatever God has called us to, and you need to do something about that. Well, right now I want to give you a chance to actually receive what God has done for you through Jesus Christ on the cross. It's true, Jesus bore your sin on the cross if you will receive him, and it will be taken upon him, and you will be wiped clean and forgiven he rose from the dead to give you a new life, a new start, a new journey, so he could dwell with you and live through the rest of it. And maybe you need to begin that today. You need to begin a life in grace. You don't get yourself right. You don't get yourself perfect right now in order to receive it. In fact, you may think you're too good for this, and I want to challenge you that maybe you need to lay that at the cross. Or maybe you think you're too bad for this. I want you to let you know God can cover it all right now is the opportunity to receive that and be forgiven. I want to give you that chance right now. Maybe that's you and God's leading you right now to do so. Would you just put your hand in your sin? That's me. I want to make this decision. I want to follow Christ. I want to be forgiven of my sin. I want to be set free from these things. If that's you and you've got your hand up, I'll just give you an opportunity to just pray this with me. Even if you don't have your hand up, you're saying, God, I, I know that I've sinned. I ask that you'd forgive me. I trust that Jesus Christ took my sins on the cross and he rose from the dead to give me life. I ask that you come into my life now so I can know you and you can lead me. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.